The rest of you, grab your Bibles. We're going to be in the same exact passage we were in last week, Luke chapter 7. Well, not the same, uh, not the same passage, the same chapter. Luke chapter 7, we're going to be uh, moving on to verse 11 as we continue our series looking at the encounters Jesus has with various types of people and how he loves them, but also then what they and what we then learn about Jesus as we encounter Jesus in the midst of his ministry on this earth. This morning we're in Luke chapter 7, we'll read, pick it up in verse 11, and we'll read through verse 17, brief passage. Hear God's word. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. And as he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bearer stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. This ends the reading of God's word. Praise be to the Lord. Aaron, I'm getting just a little bit of that kind of high-pitched feedback. If you could back me down. That would be helpful, maybe for everybody's ears. All righty, Luke chapter 7. What we see here is we see a funeral. A funeral. Uh, it's about probably around 6 p.m. where the people of the town would have left work and then gathered together at this woman's home where her son had died. And they would have grabbed, gathered into a crowd and they would have been in a processional heading out to outside the city because that is where the graveyards were. And the pallbearers would be carrying a funeral beer. This would not have been a casket. This would have been almost like a wicker basket. You can think of uh, something that you would carry somebody off of a football field or off a battlefield. And they would have it up, up above. And the deceased would be on top, his body wrapped and cleansed. But his face would probably still be visible, his arms folded. And the entire city, the entire village would come out. This was a communal affair. There's no TV to compete with the gossip that can come out of a good funeral in the community. But also, these are tightly knit places where everybody has fairly been intermarried. They're all cousins and kin and uncles and aunts to somebody. And so the procession would not have been quiet. No, this would have been a loud processional. There would have been wailing and grief. There would have actually been professional mourners, those who were designed to help conjure up the emotion of everybody else, to experience what they are feeling inside and to give voice to it. There would have been flute players playing. There's kind of a cacophony of wailing and laments. At the front of this procession, though, there's one person who would lead it out. And that is the deceased mother, out by herself, wailing in front of the whole group, leading them out to the graveyard. And this grieving mother has lost much, for she has lost what it says to be her only son. Now then, to lose other children was common, but when you had only one son, that, and only one son left, to lose that son was damaging. It was 
life-altering. It was destroying of everything. There was, of course, the loss of the relationship, but it also meant the loss of any kind of status, any kind of care. For this represented her Social Security, her Medicare, was leaving this world when her son died. She now has no future. She is reminiscent of Naomi returning back uh, from Moab to Israel, where she would essentially came, showed up, back up, and she's, the people were so glad to see her, and she said, don't be happy for me. I am Mara. I'm essentially dead. I'm a bitter woman. I am half alive. And this is what this woman would have been, half dead, essentially. She has a future that's going to be nothing but a hard, scrabbled existence, living day by day, hand to mouth, at best. This is why one of the first things the New Testament church is called to do when it forms is to do what? To take care of widows, because there is no system to take care of widows. Your family was it. And for a Jewish woman, the highest moment in life was to bear a son. And therefore, the lowest moment in life, the greatest sorrow would be to lose a son, an only son. And at the beginning of this passage, what we have here, therefore, is a woman who is desolate, alone in a crowd. Yes, joined in weeping and loss, but she is the half-dead, abandoned one, alone, deserted, without a future. Is there a grief that is greater in all the earth than losing a child? I don't know that there is. I don't know that there is. I sat, it's so bizarre, it seems to come in waves, the different kinds of sorrow. I sat three straight months this year with different fathers who had had sons who committed suicide. The grief is unbearable. And so who is this woman? She is alone who, in this world, in the midst of this crowd, her grief screaming off the page. We never even hear her voice, but it screams off the page even while the author renders her grief so incomprehensible that her cries are wordless and silent. This is what this woman is experiencing. And if you've experienced grief like this, there is something about grief, whether it's the loss of a child or other forms of grief that come alongside of us and invade our lives, the naked eye of, of, of grief and struggling, it struggles to see. The naked eye of grief sees only the raw poignance of the pain right in front of us. And here's what that pain usually says about God. Here's what it says, that God is silent, that God is distant, and that God is unwilling to do anything about our suffering. That is what the pain of grief screams theologically about our God. But I wonder if the raw, naked grief of this woman is screaming such thing in her mind and heart, and I wonder if you've had grief that has said these kind of things to you. That God is silent and he doesn't care. That God is distant from me in this sorrow and suffering, and that God is unwilling to do anything. That's how the story begins. How does the story end? Well, it ends with a proclamation from the crowd. The voice of the whole crowd, which begins, they're lamenting at the beginning, but at the end, they're now rejoicing. And they rejoice and they say something very particular. They have encountered Jesus, and what they say about him is two things. One, that he is a prophet, which indicates that God is there speaking to his people. And then second, they say that God has visited himself upon them. Which in the language of the Old Testament means that God is there for his people. That he cares for his people. That God has not deserted them and that he is watching over them like a shepherd watches over his sheep. When it appears that God has completely deserted you, it is an encounter with Jesus 
that reveals to you that God cares about you, that God visits you in your sorrows, and that he is watching over us. So what is it that happens between verses 12 and verse 16? Well, that is what we're going to look at this morning. What is it that happens in this grieving mother's encounter with Jesus that convinces her and convinces this crowd that God cares? Well, the answer is Jesus got physical. Jesus invaded her life. She had an encounter with the living, breathing, present Jesus. And here's what we see. Here's what she encounters. First, she encounters the eyes of Jesus. Verse 13. It's very palpable and when the lord saw her and when the lord saw her the first words are the simplest yet maybe the most profound words of comfort to those who are in grief the lord saw her there is a loud crowd with her but jesus attention is not to the funeral beer it is not to the lament professional lamenters it is not to the 500 or so people with her no his eyes go to her she is the one who gathers his attention. To sufferers, Jesus wants to look you in the eye and say this, I see you. I see you. I see your hurt and I see your fear. I see your tears. I see the deepest part of your sorrows that you don't even have the courage to acknowledge and say out loud or admit. I see. I see. The heart of compassion is put on display here by the eyes of Jesus, meaning this woman has his full attention. The entire body of Jesus pauses and listens, absorbing the feelings of another person. Have you ever experienced this? When someone longs for your attention, right? Those of you that have little kids know this experience. That they come up into your lap and they, they pester you. And, and what they want is not, hey, you can acknowledge them even with your voice. You can say, yes, dear. Yes, child. Yes, honey. But what they want is they want you to lift your eyes up from your phone and give them your face. Daddy, look at me. I need to see your eyes. I need your attention. In a short study of the interaction of Jesus in the Gospels, you would find uh, that if, if, over and over again that the accounts of Jesus encountering people begins with this. Jesus saw. He saw. He saw the crowd, he said, and he had compassion. He saw even the rich young ruler who's going to walk away from him. And what does it say? He saw him and he loved him when he was on the cross even on the cross what is jesus looking at and what does he see he sees his mother and he sees john and his thoughts are for his mother and her care redemptive love is incited by seeing when talking about people who had opposed her building a leper colony in india she brought all the kind of the, the leaders of a particular municipality and tried to convince them that this is what was needed and so what she did is she gathered them together and she took them out to a particular place where lepers were gathering and so mother Teresa said this once they saw they understood the need it began with seeing and this is not a new behavior for god when the Israelites were enslaved in Egypt, what does it say in Exodus chapter 3? Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. I've seen it, and I have heard the cry of their taskmasters because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. And in fact, this actually becomes one of the names of God. You may recall there's a character named Hagar. Hagar is Sarah, the wife of Abraham's. Uh, 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 Hagar is her slave. And she is treated as Sarah's personal possession. And Sarah gives 
her to Abraham to be his personal sex toy, and she is impregnated, and then an insecure Sarah then abused Hagar, and she casts her out, and Hagar goes fleeing into the deserts. But at a place that you can only describe as God-forsaken, what does she find there? God's provision. And she runs into the one who she will then call at the end of the passage, the God who sees, which in Hebrew is Jehovah El-Roi, the God who sees me. The suffering God allows is a troubling mystery to us. Our suffering grieves us, but our suffering does not mean that God has abandoned us or forgotten us. No, he sees us. And that has been playing over and over and over again in the scriptures. If I can convince you of one thing this morning, it is that your God sees you. In fact, it is not an accident that he sees because he is looking for you. We go to the, prodigal, the, the parable of the prodigal son every couple of years here and do a series on it. But just to remind you, in the parable, it's about a lost son, the younger of two sons, and he demands an inheritance while his father is still alive. In effect, he wishes his father dead, and he runs off, and he goes and squanders his life on wild living. But finally, he finds himself starving and homeless, and he decides to return home to his father and ask for forgiveness and repentance. And then it says this in Luke chapter 15, 20, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him and he ran to his son and threw his arms around him and kissed him to spot his son a long way off what did that mean the father's activity and hobby had become on a daily basis he was looking for his boy he was looking for his son putting his energy and scanning the horizon when will my son come home and that's the experience of some of you parents today isn't it and that is the experience of God the Father to you. James K. A. Smith, who's a Christian philosopher and sociologist, social person who commentates on social thing, norms, and he's also a theologian, said this, that every child looking for an absent, distant father is on the road to covering up a deeper desire. He says that such a father would come looking for them. That's their desire. That the arrow of hunger would be reversed and the father would return. Because then we would know that he was thinking about us, looking for us, and loving us. What to make of this father's hunger, he's speaking of the prodigal here, father, other than a deep longing to be seen and known by the one who made us. This, of course, is the dream come true at the climax of the parable of the prodigal son. The son, looking for home, realizes that his father is looking for him. We want to be seen. We want to be seen by our Father and our Maker, and the gospel suggests to us this, that when we see Jesus seeing us, we are seeing the face of God looking for us. Second, what do we see about Jesus' presence is we see the guts of Jesus. The guts. Now, that's not usually something we want to see. It says this in verse 13. When the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her. The Greek word for compassion is a, it's not a very... Um, lovely sounding word in Greek. It's sploncho, which is kind of a fun word to say, but sounds kind of gross. It sounds like intestines. My sploncho is coming out. It refers to a depth of feeling in which your feelings and longings churn within in you. It's actually how the, when, the, when the gospel speaks of Jesus having compassion, when his heart is deeply moved, it is literally saying that he is physically moved inside. He feels a churning in the depths of his being. His insides are moved for. He feels a physical response joining her in the depth 
and the profundity of her grief, Jesus' heart breaks for her and he suffers alongside of her. Jesus raised this boy from the dead, as we're going to see in just a second, and yet this passage is not known for is necessarily being the most famous of Jesus' passages of raising people from the dead. That gets almost no attention in the passage, actually. It's actually most known for Jesus' compassion, for his feeling. His compassion is what jumps off the page. His compassion jumps out and grabs us more than someone being raised from the dead. Compassion is the emotion, is the emotion that you know that is most often attributed to Jesus. Forty times in the Gospels, it is used to describe Jesus' emotions. In Mark chapter 1, Jesus encounters a leper, and the leper implores him to heal him. And Jesus, says, is filled with compassion and touches the leper. And he says, I am willing. His heart breaks towards the things that are broken in this world. This woman is half dead, cut off from hope, and yet God, Jesus feels her pain, and he enters her world. He feels what it's like to be in her place. Jesus feels, and he sees when he sees our distress. He, he does not turn his eyes away, but he allows himself to feel our sorrow and our suffering. Minnie Bells, who used to write for World Magazine, and this is timely because it's actually an account from 1999, the last time Turkey had a massive earthquake. But she talks about coming um, from going to that the earthquake site in the aftermath of it to do a bunch of mercy care. And she had spent a couple weeks there and over 17,000 people had died in Izmit, Turkey. And she came back to the States, come back, coming back straight from the sites where she had been seeking to, to save people and, and care. And she gets right off the plane in America and she goes immediately gets a coffee from the Starbucks in the airport. She said, I was dust-covered and unkempt and exhausted. I had come straight from the quake zone, watching all-night rescue efforts lit by Jenner-driven spotlights end in grief after grief as they pulled no one, nothing but dead bodies out of the rubble. And the barista set before me one of those really tall coffee concoctions, but I couldn't pick it up. The carton board cup with its creamy white cleanness assaulted my senses. It was an affront to the dust-laden, broken-up, shaken-down landscape that I had just inhabited for the past week. Coming out of it felt like a betrayal. I stood frozen at Star the Starbucks counter and wept. We Westerners, she said, excel at getting on with it, at binding up wounds and fixing what's broken or paying others to do it for us. We do less with pausing. We do less well with pausing to feel the pain of longing breakthrough, letting the pain be pain and do its work upon our hearts. We Westerners move on, she says, to quick solutions because in doing so, we don't actually have to feel so much. And often our solutions are therefore surface level, short term, or even harmful because we haven't taken the time to actually feel the compassion, to allow the weight of the loss and the suffering to crash over us such that we can even begin to see the depth that the solution might need to take. Jesus sees what the solution is because he feels the sorrow and the suffering of this woman. Jesus is not like us. Jesus sees and feels to the core of your pain, and therefore his solution cuts to the very core of your sorrows and this woman's sorrow. So second, the guts of Jesus, what he feels. Third, the touch of Jesus. Verse 14, and then he came up and touched the beer, not beer, B-E-R, B-I-R, B-I-E-R, which is that kind of litter. And the bear stood still. He sees, he hurts, and then what does Jesus do? He does something. 
And Jesus goes forward and he touches the body and he raises the boy from the dead and he gives him back to his mother. As is often stated these days, the bumper stickers and the shirts and the books, what does it say? Love does. In our therapeutic world, we can often believe that love has to stop at just feeling things. It often, you know, it helps also to do some things as well. But the doing of love is not separated from the looking and the feeling. There is not a juxtaposition here. If we help someone but don't take the time to look at the person and feel he or she is, is feeling, then our love is cold. And if we look and feel but don't do what we can to help, our love is cheap and merely therapeutic. But love does both. It sees, it feels, and it acts. Jesus shows real compassion, not mere empathy. This is look, feel, help. He sees the woman and feels her pain and sorrow, and then he springs into action. And I want you to see that his action, and this is critical, it costs him something. This looks like merely a touch. It doesn't look like much of an issue on the, on the, on the first reading, but a, to touch a dead body in that society meant what for you? And then a two-week suspension from church and society because dead bodies were unclean. And so if you touched the dead body, you were now unclean. And therefore, you had to remove yourself from all the clean people around you. A priest was not even supposed to be in the same room with the dead body. So much for pastoral care, right? Much less touch a dead body. And yet Jesus in compassion moves and he touches them. That's why they stop. You know, they, they're carrying him along. Jesus comes up and touches the casket, the dead body, and they all kind of go... Jesus says, I am willing in this to become unclean so that I might come close to you in your suffering. You know what makes it so hard to love people? It's the cost. The cost you have to bear to love people. And by the way, this is the, this is the great fear we have of even seeing and feeling to begin with, that we might have to do something. I've used this illustration before, but have you ever come up to a stoplight and there's a homeless person and it turns yellow and red before you can go and there's sheer panic inside of your body? Oh, no. That homeless person, I can feel them. They're looking at me. And suddenly you find yourself picking up the trash in your car and evaluating the billboard in front of you because you don't want to see. Don't make eye contact with the needy one right next to you. Paul Miller said this in his book, Love Walked Among Us. We instinctively know that love leads to commitment, so we look away when we see a beggar. We might have to pay if we look too closely and care too deeply. Loving means losing control of our schedule, our money, and our time. When we love, we cease to be the master, we cease to be the master and we become a servant. Jesus' love is not cheap. His seeing does not fail to compel him to do something to bear the cost. He moves, he acts, and he pays the price in order to love. And the question is this, are you willing also to pay the price to be the hands and feet of Jesus? There is, there is something insipid, insipid about the way we seek to help people in this world. I heard one social commentary making fun of the way we often try to help people in America. He says this, he said, what we do is we say, Hey, we add 10 cents to our Starbucks order in, in order to, to get people clean water around the world. In other words, we have to couch. We are so comfortable and so consumeristic and materialistic that we have to couch even our momentary seeming uh, moves towards sacrifice, couching it in comfort. 
I thought about this a number of years ago. I was taking our, uh, the youth group uh, that I led uh, in Mississippi on a, on a youth mission trip, and there's kind of, you can go to the PCA's website and look at various mission trips you can go on, and you can look at the cost breakdown of how much you're going to have to raise, and, and, and all the mission trips, you had these great things you were going to go do, and that was wonderful, but you break down the cost. There was the flight, then there was the housing, the food, and the third cost was always the fun activity. Because we couldn't dare take a bunch of 16-year-olds to Belize and only have them do something helpful and sacrificial for six days. We also have to let them go swim in the barrier reef for two days. Because we have to couch even our almost minor of sacrifices in something deeply comfortable and pleasurable. And so I asked church people, we are, we are so good at having events that only require us to spend four hours at caring for people. What we do not want to volunteer for are those calls and asks that might ask more of us perpetually, which almost always involves this, getting into relationship with people. And so you're willing to say, I will come and volunteer for this event, but to be a mentor for that person who's a young mom who needs it, and that might require eight weeks or plus out of my life, that's too much. Or I will help with that, but I can, let me see if I can pigeonhole it around the schedule, my vacations, and my kids already having their outings. What do we want? We want sacrifice without cost. Without cost. But Jesus does not take such an approach to his love. He is willing to give up more than simply a couple hours. This is a call, there's a cost for Jesus to touch this boy and to raise him. Jesus must come unclean. And when Jesus goes and he touches, everybody stops. Because there's an Old Testament law that says you can't touch a dead body. It was an Old Testament Jewish law, and it was given by God. Now, why would God give such a thing? It seems like God is actually removing mercy. What he is saying this, and so much of the cleanliness laws of the Old Testament, is he's saying this, I want my people to not be anywhere near anything that has to do with sin or the consequences of sin. Why is a dead body unclean? Because of its connection to sin. Why is death in this world? Because sin entered this world. And therefore, for Jesus to enter in and to deal with the uncleanliness of death and our sorrow, he must therefore deal with our sin. A dead body is unclean because it is part of the curse. The curse of sin is death. Sin leads to death. And even the consequences of sin may leave us unclean. And so in order for God to move towards us and to be near us in death, he must deal with our sin. And so this is what Jesus does on the cross. That what this is in this moment is merely Jesus kind of taking a down payment of uncleanliness. Because later on in the Gospels, he's going to go to a cross and he's going to take all the uncleanliness in this world. And he's going to take it upon himself. And he's going to take it to a cross. And he's going to become unclean. Unclean. So that you, the unclean, might be clean for all of eternity, living in God's presence. He takes the mother load on the cross. He takes his life in order to come near to us and touch us and heal us. Jesus has paid the cost to come near us in our suffering and even our death, to touch us in the valley of the shadow of death. He is not far from you, and that is courtesy of the cross of Jesus Christ. He is not put off by the, by the repulsiveness of our situation because he became something repulsive for us.
Nothing in our condition keeps Jesus from touching you. There's a book called, by a guy named Peter Moore called Disarming the Secular Gods. And he actually gives this illustration at one point about a little girl and her mother. And this little girl had, all, had grown as she kind of grown in awareness about the physical state of her mother and some embarrassment about her mother's hands. See, her mother's hands were kind of gnarled and wrinkled and ugly. Her friend's mother's hands were always smooth and, and lovely and to the touch, they felt good, whereas her mother's hands were rough. She finally cranked up the courage to ask her mother, Mommy, why are your hands so ugly? With the sensitivity that only a seven-year-old can bring. And your mother, her mother answered, well, it happened like this. When you, were in your baby, when you were a baby in your crib, there was a fire in our house. And I had to get to you to get you out of the fire. But in order to get to you, I had to put my bare hands on multiple items that were scalding hot and that were burning, and therefore your mommy's hands were burned in the process of saving you. Mommy's hands became ugly because she loved you. So the little girl looked at her and she says, Oh, mommy, I love these hands. See what Jesus is, he's willing to become something burnt and repulsive and unclean so that he might have you. He is not afraid, therefore he's not afraid to enter into any of these lowly sadnesses today. It makes me think of Isaiah 43. What's it say? We used to sing it in my youth group growing up. It's an almost impossible song to sing, but there's this great song called Isaiah 43. And it's a, it's a direct quotation when it says this, When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned. And the flame shall not consume you. And why is that? How can you walk into fire and the flames not consume you? The fires of suffering? It's because he goes into the fires with you. And he takes the, the consuming power of the fire. He takes the burning power of those embers so that he is consumed and not you. So we've seen his eyes, his guts, we felt his touch. Lastly, we hear his voice. Verse 13 and 14, when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and he said to her, do not weep. And then he came up and touched the beer and the bear stood still and he said, young man, I say to you, arise. Jesus only says two quick phrases in this whole account. Two for quick phrases. Very brief words. First, do not cry. This is, of course, to our modern ears, sounds terribly insensitive. You go up to somebody today who is crying and say, don't cry. They're liable to cease. They will stop crying, and then they might punch you in the face. Or somebody else around them might become so enraged by your insensitivity that, they would say, that you would say such a thing that they would punch you in the face on their behalf. This is everything we're taught not to do. Don't tell people how to feel don't speak to them in their sorrow. Just feel empathy and come near. And that is actually uh, quite good advice. I don't really know what to make of Jesus' statement here, though. You know, even Jesus is not consistent on this. There's three resurrection or uh, bringing back from the dead accounts in the Gospels. In the first two, this one, and when he raises Jairus' daughter, Jesus enters in, says, don't cry, and then he goes and raises somebody from the dead. The third account is what? John, or Lazarus's in John 11. And Jesus very famously, in the shortest verse of the Bible, said, it says what? Jesus wept. What gives Jesus? The answer is, I don't know. That his love must be wise and he must give tears at his, in the appropriate times. Generally, I'm in agreement, though, with the wisdom of today. The ministry of quiet presence is often the best care that you and I can provide to someone in the depths of sorrow. But I, there is an instinct here that I think can be displayed in the way a parent first responds to a child who has skinned to her knee. My daughter yesterday ran into a wall, knee first. 
And so I run to her, and what you want to say in that moment is you're like crying. And what do we say? Don't cry, don't cry. It's, but really, what are we trying to say in that? And what often goes along with, with the saying, don't cry? What we're wanting to say is, it's okay. It's going to be okay. It will be okay. Right? They're screaming like, like they fell off a cliff, like everyone around them has died. And you're saying, it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. Because there's something about the acuteness of pain, and this is where we began this morning with the mom. There's something about the acuteness of pain that's so, it's so poignant, and it so takes over our brain in that moment that you believe that the pain is never going to stop. This is what emotion, this is even what depression says to you. When you're depressed, you feel like you're never not going to be depressed. And when you're sad, you feel like you may never stop being sad. And so we say, it will be okay. We're trying to say the pain won't last. It will come to an end. Grief and pain, like, this is what we want to say will come to an end. If I had my guess, this is what Jesus is communicating here. The pain is going to end, he says. Don't cry. The pain is going to end. The sorrow won't last forever. Because in the Greek, it literally says, don't continue crying. He says, don't go on crying, but that would be cruel unless you have the power and ability to then immediately rectify that thing that is causing pain in her life. And he does. <laughs> For the very next moment, he says, do not, do not cry. And then he says, what next? Young man, arise. Young man, arise. The voice of Jesus is the trumpet that brings this young man alive that ends our sorrow and our pain. And therefore he can say, do not, do not cry. Do not continue your tears. It will end. 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 16 to 18 says this, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command. This is the best call to obedience in the world. And here's the command. And with the sound of the trumpet of God, the dead in Christ will rise. What's the command? Young man, arise. It's in the imperative. There is a stunning swiftness that is given in the resurrection, the, the bringing back to life accounts. It is always, bam! Jesus comes up, touches. There's all this wailing and grief and lament, and then boom, with a word, life. The sound of war on death, and death is dead, and life is rotting, rising. There is a staccato punch to Jesus' words, like the blast of a trumpet sound. Victory. His is the voice of victory. And he comes and he commands life and death, and in that voice is victory itself. The voice that raised this poor young man from his coffin bed will be trumpeted into the depths of the sea one day, into the roots of the mountains, into the dust particles of this world of God's physically dead children, and all who know Christ will hear it, and they will rise. To you who suffer today, whether it be physical pain, an emotional pain, relational pain, you're suffering some sort of sorrow and loss, and it feels as if there's nothing else true in this world but the truth of the pain that you're experiencing, my prayer for you is that you would experience Jesus in this way. And even as you, until he finally ends your suffering at the end of all things, that you would become familiar with his voice. The voice of God would comfort you along the way until the final day when you finally hear his voice ring out with the final command that all the dead shall rise again. And that all that is sorrowful in this world will be done with. I'll leave you with one final image. 
There are two crowds in this passage. It's interesting. Verse, the very first verse says that the whole town is going out with this woman to the graveyard. And it also says in verse 11 that Jesus is coming from Capernaum, where our, from our passage last week where he heals the centurion's servant. It says a great crowd is following Jesus. Scholars simply estimate that a great crowd probably estimates somewhere between 750 to 1,000 people. And the town of Nain probably has about 500 people. And so what do we see? It is two crowds. They're coming towards each other. One crowd is led out by a woman to a place of death and a grave. The other is coming from the other direction, led by Jesus in a procession that gives life. So let me ask you today, which crowd are you part of? And then also the question would be, if you know you're part of a crowd of life following Jesus, that crowd gives life wherever it goes. So are you part of his life-giving work in this world? He who has ears, let him hear. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I, um, I felt acutely aware this week of those in our church who are suffering. Think of what my father has always said to me, that he, we feel constantly tethered to the fall. And there is nothing like death and our sorrow and grief that reminds us that we are tethered to the fall on this side of eternity. So Heavenly Father, as we, um, as we as pilgrims walk through the valley of this life, I do pray that we would encounter you in it. Spirit of the living God, I pray for those, particularly in this room, in, who are encountering suffering this week, that you would come and give them your presence. That, Lord, there would be something from this that they would be able to cling to, whether it's the eyes of Jesus or the, the compassion of Jesus, the touch of Jesus or the future command of Jesus that he will end all this sorrow and suffering. That, Lord, you would come near us and comfort us. And, Heavenly Father, I pray that we as the people who are on the procession of life, of life who defeat death, that we would be a people who would follow our Savior and be willing to sacrifice Yes, even in our body. Lord, I think of those this week who've come around, families in our church who've experienced death. And Lord, I thank you for the way our, our church will come around them in relationship with not just food, but their physical presence and their care and their touch. Lord, I pray that we would be a people who reach out beyond even these doors to bring others in to experience that as well. Lord, will we so know your loving affection and presence that we would become that for others. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.